Uh, I've got a question. Okay. Hand-pulled noodles. Yum. You like? I do, yeah. Um, okay, I so like I've just only... about every kind of noodles that there is. Yeah, but, that's what I thought yeah. about myself until I started. <laughs> Where in Edmonton have you had hand-pulled noodles? And and I mean, like, the, I'm talking about a specific, like, not, when I say hand-pulled noodles, it, to me, that's a very specific, it's not just noodles that are made by hand. It's like the northern Chinese, like, really thick, uh, like, land, land noodles on White Avenue is the only place that I've ever had it, but, and, like, right. served in, like, a clear beef broth and stuff like that. Is that what you have in mind when I say that? Yeah, although um, not always really thick, as you said. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But I have had them at Land Noodle, and they were good. I'm always surprised, like they're so the thick ones are so thick and chewy. Like, mm-hmm. I, and I is that what they're always like? Uh, I mean, well, so honestly, I haven't had a ton of thick ones, so mm-hmm. I'm not really sure uh, how other thick hand pulled noodles like compare to land noodle mm-hmm. um, but i have had thinner ones and they they do like make them in different diameters and it all has to do with like how many times they um they like stretch and then cross back mm-hmm. right so like mm-hmm. you start with like a big thick rope and then you like fold that in half and then you start pulling it and and like waving it around i don't know how to best yeah. describe it yeah <laughs> but then and then you like as you're kind of like you're kind of like banging it up and down on the table and then it's like there's like usually cornstarch or some type of starch on the table to keep the noodles from sticking together mm-hmm. and then as you like as you like move them up and down and and like pull with your hands they get longer and then you like fold them in half again so like you start with one noodle then you wind up with two you fold it in half again you get four you fold it mm-hmm. in half again you get eight and then you exponentially get a huge handful of noodles and i don't know um like what the like how big a piece they start with and how many times they're supposed to fold it to get certain thicknesses of noodles but i know that you can get several different thicknesses and textures of noodles by doing that and uh so yeah and i've had thinner ones in like quite quite a long time ago in restaurants in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't had a ton in Edmonton. I'm kind of wondering now, I'll, I don't think, I don't know. I'm not sure if they have hand-pulled noodles at Noodle Feast or not. I don't exactly remember. I know mm-hmm. they have a lot of different kinds of hand-cut noodles. Yeah, totally. But, but I don't for sure remember if they have hand-pulled ones or not. So I don't mm-hmm. remember if I've had them there. Um but yeah, I have had them at Land Noodle, and I liked it. I liked lots of the different kinds of noodles. I don't know. I'm kind of like a, I don't know. I'm pretty into noodles, and I like all kinds of different textures and stuff. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that the ones that you had at Land Noodle didn't really have a good texture, or what? Well, I don't know if that's what it's supposed to be like or not. I, I should try their thinner styles, but I think by default they're, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but like they're they're most popular and most traditional. Uh, noodle bowl with that clear beef broth and pickled daikon and chili oil. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it, it by if you don't clarify, they'll send it with thick noodles. And I'm always just surprised the they're not very supple. That's for sure. They're like it's a you really have to it, chaw on them. <laughs> like they're they're real chewy. They're, they're chewy. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's interesting. I don't exactly remember that. Although, like the last time I went, I've been twice. I think in the last time I went. Um, 
I went with my brother and it was like for my birthday and we got a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we only ate a little bit of a bunch of it and then I took a bunch home and then and then ate a bunch like sort of after it was left over in the fridge so that like obviously drastically changes the texture of noodles right. when yeah. you <laughs> subject them to that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I I don't don't know if I can comment. And I don't remember them being like hard to deal with or anything. Yeah. Okay. The beef rolls are awesome. Those like um it's like a, the, a thin pliable version of a green onion cake wrapped around sliced beef it's really good oh cool i don't think i had that highly recommend sounds delicious mm-hmm. i mean most of the food that i had there i felt thought, thought was really good some there was a few things that there's a few things that were like perfectly seasoned and a few things that were a little bit under seasoned mm-hmm. and you know i don't know maybe that's just like a day-to-day difference but mm-hmm. but yeah generally both times I went, I was pretty happy with what I got. Okay, I'll but try a different style. I think I think we should try to go to Noodle Feast again soon. I haven't been there in a long time and I miss it. Yeah, same. Welcome to Food Court. I'm Shale McDonald and I'm here with my co-host Alan Sutterby. How you doing, Alan? Great. We're two chefs from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We love food and we love to talk about it. We sure do, Shil. We sure do. Dang. I said we're from Edmonton again. I thought I <laughs> thought I fixed that. <laughs> Can't teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that I am, it's an old dog. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Do we have any follow-up? It's my favorite thing with which to start the episode. Um, No. Fair enough. The truth is we do have follow-up, but we can't follow up about it yet. Right. Yeah. Um, And so maybe I'll drop a little hint But uh, hopefully, if things work out, uh, we're going to have a special guest interview with Erica regarding some of the things that we talked about in the last episode, Mm -hmm. uh, wherein she cooked a large portion of the dishes in the uh, fancy dinner that we were talking about in the last episode. And as we were talking about it, I think we were both realizing that there were a lot of questions that we could have had answered or things that she could have disambiguated for us. And so... Right. Yeah. While I was editing it, I was thinking like, ah, oh, dang, I really should like try to get her perspective on some of the, some of these things. Mm-hmm. I messaged her and she said she'd be okay with uh, doing a, a short interview. So we're going to try and arrange that um, before we, um, before we record and post the next episode. Awesome. So probably just include it as like a little section. Um or something like that. I haven't quite mm. figured that out yet, but mm-hmm. that's something to look forward to. Erica's never been on the show before, but she knows a lot. So, yeah. What are we going to talk about? Should we talk about the weather first, Alan? <laughs> we love talking about the weather. <laughs> it was, I mean, if you want, I mean, it, it was trying to snow this morning. That's the big news. Um, yeah, the big news is it, it is actually snowing at my house right now. So oh, it's like yeah. f- kind of kind of in a for real way, in a way that it hasn't really done so far this season. Mm-hmm. 
which is sort of romantic. It's like a vibe, Alan. That's what, the, that's what I, I believe that's what the millennials say these days. It's a vibe. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll write that. Hold on. I'm going to write that You're down. a millennial, right? I actually opted out. I'm not. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I opted out too. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had known that was an option, actually. Opting out. I'm well, I'm well within the, is, is 1980 the cutoff for millennial? I honestly don't know. I think is that how it usually works? It, I don't even know how it works. I, I'm like completely ignorant to how like generational. Uh, I think, aren't you firmly in Gen X or no? Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> I am. But yeah. now that I, now that I realize that I could have opted out, I, I don't know if I can associate myself in that way anymore. But yeah, oh. definitely. 100%. Yeah. I'm firmly within Gen X. And also, <laughs> when I see stereotypes about Gen Xers online, I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... I think the most common starting date for millennials is 1980, I think. Okay. Sorry, I guess like what I was going to ask is like, does it usually start like on the first year of a decade? No. Is that how they make those distinctions or is it just sort of more like a cultural distinction? It's cultural. Definitely. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I'm, I'm technically within the well within the cutoff but i yeah like i said i i i submitted the papers and i opted out i'm yeah not a millennial okay i'll I'll have to look into that okay but what we're actually going to talk about mm-hmm. is that alan went back to school uh basically i got to retake Ooh. um a course that i i did take when i was in in culinary school um, oh you did take it i didn't well oh yeah okay i guess yeah that makes sense it would have been like a unit right it was a, it, it was a full class. Um, so we're talking about uh, it's just called patisserie. Um, okay. But when you're in culinary school at Nate, anyways, um, you do in first year you do a baking and pastry course, and in second year you do a patisserie course um, that covers. It's pretty broad, actually. It covers everything from uh, bread to chocolate and confections, um, and there's also a service component to it. So when you eat lunch at Ernest, um, your sorbet bread and dessert comes from this patisserie class. Um, right. so and I, they have a kitchen that's right beside your service kitchen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I, like I said, I, I took this class when, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, when I was in culinary school, but, um, really did not do very much pastry work uh, or certainly not chocolate work, um, my time in industry. Um, and it wasn't even really part of my home cooking, um, or like the, my hobby side of cooking. Um, but then there were a handful of situations over the last few years where I realized that I would be a lot more useful to the people around me if I knew more, (laughs) if I was better at, um, patisserie. Uh, so for instance, uh, like coaching, um, not this past fall, but the fall previous, I coached a team in a in a cooking competition called the Varshney Cup at Nate, and we had to make a dessert. And I was like, uh, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't had to conceive of a plated dessert really in my entire career, um, and <laughs> and was pretty foggy on some of the um, some really important core techniques like you know 
making meringue and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, I decided that this fall I would retake the um, second year patisserie course at Nate. Um, and I, yeah, basically I was a student, I was assigned to a group and I went through the stations, uh, with, uh, with my classmates and we're going to talk about it, I guess. Right. That's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. What, what afforded you the opportunity to go back and take this class? Um, for the last, um, few weeks of the term, um, another instructor was covering, uh, evening dining. So it's the same same services and same menu that we discussed earlier in the fall, but uh, another instructor was um, was covering me, and so I had almost well it, it aligned exactly with the length of this course, so about uh, three or four weeks. Yeah, and I I had floated the idea to my supervisor because they knew that was um, something that I wanted to work on and improve, strengthen my skills. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I guess like, like you were saying that you haven't really had very many opportunities to like work on or conceptualize or get much experience in making plated desserts or mm -hmm. desserts in general. And, you know, I assume that, you know, that's because for the most part you've been working in savory kitchens that, that, you know, provide mainly providing savory things. And maybe, you know, every once in a while you had to come up with a dessert and you probably just sort of like used staples that you had in your repertoire yeah, for exactly. that kind of thing. And you've never been put in a position where you've sort of had to creatively like, um, you know, work in pastry or something like that. Yeah. And so like, obviously um, we did desserts for catering and mm -hmm. um, either... Yeah, I would fall. Well, usually um, it was not fine dining. And so it would be perfectly acceptable for right. me to make, like, I'm, I make pie at home all the time. Um, so right. to make or something like rustic. Crumble like that, or fruit crisp yeah. or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or um, for uh, certainly the latter half of um, my time in catering, we had the kitchen, the bakery at District that was supporting us. Um, and right. so if we needed anything more finessed than what I could execute, <laughs> then, um, then the bakery at district would, would step in. <laughs> right. And so I guess like in your current position, do you feel like you kind of have even less opportunity to work on that because the patisserie mm -hmm. section slash course is the one who's providing all of the desserts yeah so you exactly. just really have no say in what the dessert menu even is on yep. your yeah that's right yeah it actually when i was a student um the the equivalent of the evening dining class that i instruct now that one class did actually make um everything that was served in the evening um yes the savory courses but also the bread and the palate cleansers and the desserts oh. Um, but then somewhere, sometime over the last 10 years, they, they parsed it out and, um, the baking and pastry program, um, needed to have a class in the evening anyways. And so they said, well, th they'll, oh. they'll take care of, um, the production and service of that, uh, piece. Um, and it's actually looking like sometime in the next few years, it might go back to how it was where the culinary students are, um, preparing everything, um, savory bread, sorbet, um, palate cleanser or sorry, uh, dessert. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, they've done it all kinds of ways, I guess, over the years. Hmm. But yeah, right now I don't touch it at all. Right. And so are you concerned then that like, <laughs> so you, you've gone back to school, you've learned a whole bunch of, or relearned a whole bunch of stuff about pastry and like filled your head with all these ideas of how to um, prepare desserts and maybe you have ideas for plated desserts. Now, do you feel like you're not going to get to use that at all and it's just going to rot on the vine or what? <laughs> so yeah, it won't, uh, it won't be used in evening dining. Um, but yeah, I'm going to make a, an effort to, um, to keep the skills sharp and to start developing some plates just, uh, or some dessert concepts kind of, uh, as, as a hobby project. Um, so that, cool. yeah, it doesn't, it wasn't, it wasn't all for naught. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and then I suppose if there's a possibility of like, of it switching back so that evening dining is providing, um, all of the breads and the dessert menu as well, then it would be important for you to have that little side project ready to roll. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Or it would be helpful. I mean, another thing that occurs to me is that, like, you know, we've talked several times on the show about how, like, in fine dining, most especially, there's a lot of crossover these Mm -hmm. days between the techniques that, you know, primarily are sort of, like, taught and developed in patisserie, making their way over to the savory kitchen in terms of, like, finding new ways to present things. And, you know, uh, you know, patisserie is, like, you know, kind of more the area where where you get like these like really fancy gorgeous presentations and things like that that's a huge i would say it's a bigger part of or historically it's been a bigger part of like patisserie than it has been of like savory cooking Mm -hmm. and now a lot of that is sort of like cross-pollinating back into the savory kitchen to sort of like up the presentation game in the in the savory kitchen like a lot of the stuff from 11 madison park that we've talked about it uses you know patisserie techniques to try and get those really clean fancy looking presentations and things like that and so yeah i'm sure i mean you know maybe we'll get into it as we start talking about it but but like i'm sure there's some room for you to bring some of the technique and practice some of the technique in in the savory kitchen and mm-hmm. you know have that as you know, like you know and to consequently you know bring bring that to the students who are in your evening dining class as a sort of like concept or something totally yeah yeah cool so how long ago did you finish uh just a few days ago actually oh cool yeah they, uh, so it's all fresh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they had their last, um, the last service of the season for for lunch was this past Friday. It was a large uh, buffet, actually. But um, and the whole all of last week was um, <laughs> it was a busy place. The the dining room, like we were serving about 130 people every day, uh, and it was a set uh, holiday menu. Um, oh, crazy! Yeah, was it like? groups who booked ahead for like to have their christmas dinner there or something to have their like christmas party or there were lots of large groups but it was um yeah it was it wasn't all banquets and stuff but it was uh yeah there were there were quite a few groups of 15 20 (laughs) 25 kind of so oh wow crazy that's intense Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so yeah the the structure of that uh, patisserie class um students are put into groups uh 
and then you you cycle through three stations. Like you spend a week on each station. Um, the okay. three stations. Can I guess what the stations are? Sure. Bread. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Plated desserts. Yeah, service station. Yeah, that's right. Service. Yeah, and then I guess like I don't know dessert prep. Uh, it's called chocolate, but it's a little broader than that. Chocolate. But it's like cho- oh, okay, chocolate okay, and okay. confections, I guess. Duh. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And yeah, they are each of those stations is a little broader than that. Um, so like on the bread station, yes, you produce the bread uh, for the lunch service, but you also are responsible for making. Um, a series of uh, classic cakes um, that are, and, and sorry, for one thing that's different for lunch service than uh, dinner at Ernest is that most Fridays is actually a buffet. So you have regular a la carte oh. service Monday to Thursday, and then on Friday, um, it's a it's a buffet. So on the, on the bread station, uh, you're making bread, but you're also making um, cakes for the buffet. Uh, on chocolate and confection, you're making uh, like molded, chocolates like uh truffles but also um yeah a, a wide variety of uh, other sweets and confections like pâte de fruits and macarons and stuff like that um cool. and then on the service station besides doing the mise en place um for the a la carte dessert service um there's also a handful of um items that are being produced for the buffet like i think every week they have uh the kind of action station uh for the dessert uh, buffet is like a usually a crepe i think like a like crepe suzette or something like that cool um, and flambéed yeah. uh no sorry but <laughs> oh <laughs> well yeah sorry they have like a little garridon like a little gas burner that they wheel into yeah, yeah. the yeah <laughs> sweet <laughs> and how long was the course how many weeks it was just over three weeks. And so you spend a full week on each of those uh, stations and then there's a, a few extra days, but yeah. Right on. Which was your favorite? Uh, chocolate. I was, cool. I, I could see myself someday really like going down a chocolate rabbit hole. I thought it was really, uh, really interesting. I was, I don't know why, but kind of intimidated by the tempering process because right. we like we they mm-hmm. do like proper tabling like on a on a mar- marble slab um yeah i mean like then, they would have to yeah but once you once i had a couple um a couple tabling sessions under my belt it was is really fun really interesting um there's an excellent text that we were using uh published by the cia um just called chocolate and confection um oh cool and yeah the I liked it way more. It, it surprised me how much I enjoyed it. Um, the yeah, like casting chocolate in molds and and stuff like that. It was it was fun and it, it, like a real uh, precision game. Like you could, you could definitely go down a deep rabbit hole of the the science um, uh, of the tempering and, and stuff like that. It was really interesting. Yeah, did they mostly like were you mostly tempering using traditional tempering techniques, or did they use sous vide for tempering or anything like that? Uh, no, it was all um, pretty old school. Like they have a um, a set of actually a set of ovens, like under range ovens, that mm-hmm. are only used for uh, like they're never turned on. It's just the the heat of the pilot light used to um, always have melted chocolate on hand. What's so funny? That's interesting. What's so funny? I, <laughs> I don't get it. What do you mean? What's so funny? 
<laughs> I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can ascertain what's hilarious about that. You're using a, an entire oven that has like so many purposes. You're just keeping it completely off and using the heat of the pilot light. Yeah. It feels like there's a better way to do that or something. Like in <laughs> like there's a different piece of equipment that you could have that would generate the heat of a pilot light that wouldn't have to be an entire oven that's like taking up space under under someone's station. I think it's hilarious. I think it's because so like obviously in a in an actual production situation they would have a dedicated warmer. It's basically I if I understand right, it's basically just like a big yeah. alto sham, right? Um, yeah, yeah. That um, will always have melted chocolate on hand. But this one, like, because like those under range ovens are basically useless to a to a pastry kitchen because they're so unreliable. <laughs> yeah. um, they, there's no convection. The temperature is, is not well controlled, uh, and the totally. heat's not well circulated. So they have all the like the Baxter rotating convection ovens and, and a large deck oven and stuff like that for the the actual baking that needs to happen. And so, yeah, like maybe it would be nice to have a range oven for whatever, toasting nuts or something. But um, yeah, they have, this one is dedicated for chocolate. So at any given time, there's a four-inch half hotel um, of each uh, white chocolate, milk chocolate, and dark chocolate in this oven. Um, it more or less holds it at that um, the high end of your, uh, like 112 Fahrenheit or so, um, where you want, uh, where, where you begin the tempering process, where you heat it uh, to that stage uh, to melt all of the fat crystals. Um, right. And then, yeah, like I said, they have a, I guess a six, must be a six foot um, marble slab uh, workstation where the, yeah, they do the tabling method to temper the chocolate. Uh, so you dump out most of the uh, melted chocolate from the hotel pan, and then you're using a scraper and uh, a palette knife um, to move the chocolate around the surface. I've never done that. What are you? Oh, what there... are you watching for when you are? So there is when you're moving it around the table. Like what? What? Uh, the, are there ways that you can tell, like texturally and visually, to like sort of know where you're at in terms of the recrystallization of the fat and stuff like that? Definitely, uh, there are visual cues. Like it will, the chocolate will. Uh, noticeably thicken, uh, become more viscous. Uh, but we were using um, an infrared uh, temperature gun to monitor the temperature. Okay, yeah. We basically want to go so from 112 Fahrenheit, where all the um, fat crystals are melted, down to um, about 82 or 84 um, Fahrenheit. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, once you've and sorry, and that's done by moving it around the marble slab. And then once you're at that temperature, uh, the chocolate's going back into the hotel pan and then into um, a, a special dedicated uh, chocolate warmer. Um, now we're talking. <laughs> and then it, you want to <laughs> you bring it up a few more degrees to its uh, to its working temperature, which is 86 Fahrenheit. Right. And then once you have it at that temperature, then theoretically it's tempered and then you can pour it into the molds and yep. yeah That's and then you try to keep it in that temperature range right so that the fat doesn't remelt or re- yeah crystallize in weird ways so you probably there's probably a little bit of like taking out what you need and molding it as quickly as possible and putting it back in that at that temperature and stuff like that yep yeah totally um these warmers um they do a pretty good job of like you can keep it at working temperature without breaking the temper for for quite a while um and you just have to watch for like for instance if you were doing 
um, dipped chocolates, like where you, you've made like a hard ganache and you're using, uh, dipping forks, um, uh, to get a, a tempered chocolate coating on it. If you're, you know, putting too much stuff in there, um, you could cool the chocolate too much, uh, and lose your temper, but, um, right. Yeah. But basically as the chocolate's cooling, it's keeping its temper pretty much until it cools hard, right? Because that's what's going to happen on the surface of whatever you're molding it onto or into as well, right? Yeah. It's going to cool all the way to room temperature and that's going to be set as a temper. So I guess like, you know, the risk is more that it gets too thick and starts to get gloopy and then you have to remelt it and retemper it. Right. Or yeah. Or it like could that, get right? too hot yeah. too. Like if you oh. get too much above, I think something like 88 uh, Fahrenheit, you'll start to see, um, some streaks of fat. Like if you're, um, right. if you do a temper test, like by dipping the end of a palette knife in the chocolate, um, when it sets, like it, it will set hard, but you'll see kind of streaks of fat. Streaks. Um, and so you don't, I mean, if it's subtle enough, you don't have to retemper. You just have to c- cool it back down to working temperature and, and stir it lots and it should be fine. But right, right. Um, because there are still a lot of crystals in there that are tempered correctly. And so they mm-hmm. act as a seed for the fats that have gone over as you like cool it back down to the right mm-hmm. tempered temp, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is there a different temperature for the dark chocolate, milk chocolate, and white chocolate? Yeah. Going from dark to milk to white, it's usually like you'll, you'll still always bring them up to the 112 or whatever, but, um, you have to because so, you're just keeping them in a deck oven. <laughs> <or in that. laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a couple degrees cooler um, from dark to milk and from milk to white. And so for white gotcha. chocolate, we would go from 112, uh, cool it down to I think 78, uh, and then our working temperature was 80 or 82. Yeah, and it th- that's uh, I think you'll also see slight variations like from our textbook, for instance, uh, different, um, chocolate producers will recommend different working temperatures for their specific right, product. Right. So I don't know if the ones we were using are spit, we were, uh, primarily using, um, cocoa berry chocolate, I think. Um, so I don't know if these temps are specific to that product or what, but, right. um, but yeah, That's it was interesting. Fun. You're making me want to temper some chocolate. <laughs> like. <laughs> it's yeah. And it was fun. Like I, I haven't thought much about the uh, you know, like all of the decorative components of um, casting chocolate, like they had they had transfer sheets, they had all like, you know, a, a rainbow of different um, shades of cocoa butter, um, like dyed right. cocoa butter. Um, they had uh, like an airbrush and uh, like an air compressor and you could airbrush a cocoa butter on. And right. So yeah, it was it was fun. I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did, but my the the most decorative um thing I did um for my uh, my assignment was to make um a molded chocolate that had a vanilla milk chocolate ganache filling. Mm-hmm. Um and so in the molds, what did I do? They had like I think it's called chart tape. It's just like thin, not even a quarter inch wide tape that you can put into the mold to um, like you put it into the mold and then apply whatever kind of colored cocoa butter you want. And then you can take the tape off and you have a clean space, like a right. clean line where the cocoa butter couldn't, um, couldn't access. So I did, um, the chart tape 
and then I flicked uh, white, like splattered <laughs> white uh, cocoa butter into the mold and then brushed blue cocoa butter across the entire surface of the mold, still with the tape there, then took the tape oh, cool. off uh, and then brushed red uh, cocoa butter where the tape had been. So it was supposed to, <laughs> the inspiration was the NASA logo, like, the <laughs> which is the like the, the blues, the blue, uh, um, the blue sky of space with white stars. And then like, there's a strong red, yeah. I can't remember what the shape is, but, um, so yeah, it was like blue background, white stars, and then this red band, um, across the chocolate. Um, it turned out pretty good actually. Sweet. Uh, it looked, it looked, do you have pictures good. that we can uh, post? I think they're not, not very good quality, but yes, I do have pictures of it. Oh, darn. Okay. Sweet. And the other thing on the chocolate station that I had never even heard of this before, but like, uh, a butter ganache, like uh, a ganache that's based on butter and chocolate instead of cream and chocolate. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, apparently it's uh, that text that I, the CIA book I mentioned, uh, Chocolate and Confections, says that it's very common in Europe, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. almost never u- or not widely used in North America. Um, but so with the the cream ganache, like the process is basically you scald cream and you pour it over um, chopped room temperature chocolate. Yeah. Let the temperature kind of equalize. And then you just blitz it with like a stick blender or whatever. You can add mm-hmm. a, a little bit of butter, a little bit of glucose, but it's really, it's, um, an emulsion of cream and chocolate. Um, yeah, that's how Escoffia did it. Blitzed it with the stick blender. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you gave it a quick waz with the stick blender. Yeah. That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but for, um, for the, Butter ganache, the process is uh, you have soft room temperature butter that you mix um, maybe with a bit of glucose or something, but then you you cream it um, until it's light and fluffy. And then you stream in um, tempered, like warm tempered chocolate uh, while you're paddling it. And so, yeah, it's it's an emulsion of butter and chocolate instead of cream. And so it has a much firmer texture much lower liquid content, like a much lower, what's it yeah. called, like active water kind of content. Um, right, much higher fat content. Yeah. Um, but it's cool, like, so because it's a bit firmer, then it's easier to, like, you could um, take that uh, butter ganache and spread it out in a, in a frame. Uh, and then once it's at room temperature, you can, like, use a, a guitar to to cut it into cubes or whatever shape and and then dip them or whatever the case may be but um so that was right so you can actually handle it like when it's at room temperature in a way where you can make nice shapes out of it rather than just you know like basically the only thing that you can do with like the cream ganache is like turn it into like roll it into truffles or something when Mm -hmm. it's at room temperature. yeah or pipe it yeah 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 um yeah so that was interesting the other stuff on yeah that's cool um, and it was fun because we were going into the Christmas season. There was lots of fun flavors. Like we made a, you know, gingerbread flavored ganache, like what had molasses and baking spices and stuff in it. We did every, everything was flavored eggnog, <laughs> you know, we did a- eggnog, <laughs> right. eggnog, uh, butter ganache, uh, to pipe into truffle shells. And, um, yeah, it was fun. The other confections on chocolate station actually brought in some, uh, cherry juice some sour cherry juice from that we had made from our cherries from our yard and i made sour sour cherry pat de fui Um, oh cool how'd that turn out uh it was awesome i'll I'll, (laughs) i have loads i'll I'll bring you some oh sweet um and yeah so it was all uh juliet cherries 
um, made, what are the other confections? Made Florentines. It's interesting, like a lot of the, we, we've talked about uh, the Duchess uh, Bake Shop cookbook and how excellent it is. Um, yeah. There were several times, and granted the, the, the instructor of this class uh, worked at Duchess, um, but there were several times where we'd be given an assignment and it would refer to, it would say like, you know, we'd like you to make Madeleines today. Um, mm-hmm. And like, here's the page in the textbook that you can find the recipe. But usually, or often anyways, uh, it would also be like, but also the, the Duchess recipe is a lot better than the one in the textbook. So. <laughs> um, so it was like an honorary textbook for the course. Uh, like it, it's, not, That's cool. it's not in the syllabus or anything, but there was lots of details and tricks in the uh, in the Duchess book that uh, find their way into this class. And um, for instance, the macaron recipe uh, for that kitchen is, is the Duchess recipe, or at least the Duchess recipe that's published in the book that they used before they, I think now they have a fancy machine that makes their macaron, right, but the macaron. when yeah. they were doing it by hand, this was the recipe they used. So yeah, made, made macaron for the first time since culinary school, probably. Um, that was fun. Um, How'd they look? They, <laughs> they turned out very well. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I did pistachio. Pistachio macaron. Yeah. Mm, yum. It's like my favorite. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like one of those things where when you make them and they turn out, I don't know, for me at least, it's like, <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of like a magical feeling or yes. something. Yeah. Totally. I don't know why, but. Yeah, it's interesting. Because there is like a little bit of magic that happens and it's like a very tricky kind of thing to get it right because the, you know, when they're, to get the right shape, like, before mm-hmm. they bake, they have to, you know, the tops have to get a little bit dry and stuff. And like, right. there's just, and, and then because of that, they like do this like sort of like puffing thing where the bottom souffles, but the top stays nice and glossy. Toned. And like, yeah. it's, it's sort of like a, it's a magical thing when it works out. Totally. And it seems like some, I've never heard this before, but it seems like something that almost certainly was invented by accident, right? Like someone. Oh yeah. Almost <laughs> certainly. Piped these cookies and then forgot about them for half an hour. It's like, oh shoot, I got to get those in the oven. And <laughs> yeah, and then they turned into this like funky little shape. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're right. Yeah, or just like through the day. Yeah, the course of like the daily sort of like scheduling of a bakery. Just like somebody couldn't quite get the, you know like figure out how to get the cookies in fast enough. And, <laughs> right. Yeah, and that was just a consequence of what happened, and then they became famous or something. I don't know. <laughs> Um, I was excited to do macaron because that is something that a student in evening dining recently brought into the savory world uh, for their amuse-bouche project. They made smoked salmon macaron. Oh, cool. uh, it was super tasty um, and, and a really, right really fun idea. Yeah, that would be interesting, like that, you know, that texture and then, you know, having a savory flavor with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is one there's also a savory uh, macaron in the, in the Eleven Madison Park cookbook. I think it's a carrot. I don't know how they, I don't know how they get the carrot flavor in there. I can't remember, but um, yeah. yeah. The other um, time that the Duchess cookbook kind of trumped um, the official text was with Florentines, which mm-hmm. um, like classically Florentines are just it's like 
nuts in caramel. Like it's just like a thin sheet right. of uh, nuts in caramel. But the Duchess version, which they call Florentine Grand Mère, um, has a the, the caramel and nuts are spread onto par baked pat sucre, so like a like tart dough, um, and so it eats more like a cookie. Like you right. get a little bit of pastry with the caramel and nuts. Um, a really fun idea and a really excellent way to use up um, odds and ends of of pat sucre. Off cuts of yeah, yeah. Just like smash it into a, <laughs> roll it out, um, smash it into a a bake sheet and par bake it, and then dump caramel and nuts on it, and it's yeah, really tasty. Cool. Were there a, a few copies of the Duchess cookbook like available in the kitchen or was it sort of like no. an unwritten rule that no, no, um, it was where it was pertinent, pertinent, uh, like the, the recipes that were provided by the instructor, um, were adapted from, um, the Duchess cookbook to so like the macaron and oh, then I everything see. else he was like, if you've got a copy of it <laughs> and, and I do, right, right. um, as we've discussed, um, so that's where I was pulling some of my. Uh, like the buttercream recipe for the pistachio macaron and the um, and the Florentine and stuff like that. So, and and Madeleine's Sweet. actually as well. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about butter ganache, I was thinking about buttercream. It's kind of similar. In some ways, <laughs> they both have butter in them. That's that's one way. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, Speaking of buttercream, so that's that's my synopsis of the chocolate station. It's really fun. Um, mm-hmm. The the bread station, bread is another one where, like, I make bread at home, but it's almost always what what it's like pizza dough or focaccia, or I haven't like right. had to shape or score a loaf bread. or a roll <laughs> yeah. or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the bread program uh, every day for lunch service there is uh, brioche, there is bannock. And there's a kind of rotating um, sourdough. Um, so um, they have a, what do they have? There's like a roasted garlic sourdough, um, a potato and onion sourdough, cheese sourdough, um, and then like a, a multigrain and just a classic like straight sourdough. Um, so th- those change daily, but they're always, uh, the sourdough is always accompanied um, by brioche and, uh, and bannock. So, right. um, yeah, and it was good to, well, we had brioche on the menu, uh, in evening dining, uh, to accompany the chicken liver mousse. So I had made that, um, fairly recently, but yeah, most of the, I don't, yeah, I don't make sourdough at home, but it was, so it was right. good to get a few reps in for that and to relearn how to use the deck of the proofer and the deck oven and, and all that. Um, so nice to have a proofer. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, a it's the one thing that people who are baking bread at home don't usually have access to and trying to use your under range oven as a proofer is like very tricky and yeah, annoying. Totally. So. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the really fun thing on, on bread station was, um, every student has to do a, uh, classical dessert project or classical cake project. Uh, sorry. Cake is used pretty loosely. Um, but every student okay. is assigned a classical cake or dessert. Um, they have to, um, research it and give a little presentation to the class about its history and how it's made. Uh, and then it's, uh, they prepare it and serve it at the Friday buffet. Um, and so I did, <laughs> I did two, actually, I did a Boston cream pie and baklava. Um, oh, cool. So it was fun to, to do the presentation to the class and 
Um, I'd never even heard of Boston Cream Pie before, I don't think. I had definitely heard of it. Yeah. Because of Boston Cream Donuts. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, that's why <laughs> I not thought just, it was I a... hadn't just heard of the donuts. I think I heard of the donuts at Tim Hortons. It's a very popular donut when I was growing up at Tim Hortons. I'm <laughs> right. sure they still have it. Yeah. Although it's been years since I've had one. Um, and I think like <laughs> when I was young, because I'm a nerd, I was like, Boston cream, what is that? Mm -hmm. And then I tried to find out. And then, yeah, I found out that it's based on a dessert called Boston cream pie. And then I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I'll bet that's delicious. But I don't even know if I've ever had one. So it's, uh, <laughs> you want me to give my presentation? It's, um, <laughs> yes, please. It's, it's only like, it's like three or five minutes or something. But, um, so Boston cream pie is actually a cake, uh, or we, we wouldn't recognize it as a pie. Um, but apparently right. when it was developed in the 19th century, apparently the terms pie and cake were sometimes used somewhat interchangeably in America because they were both baked in the same tin, but, um, and like everything now it's completely partisan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what it is, is um, sponge cake, custard, sponge cake, um, coated with the chocolate fondant. That, that's all that it is. O originally, like the, the very first one, that sponge cake was, was brushed with a rum syrup. And um, okay. there might have been some sliced almonds pressed onto the side of the cake. But really, we're talking about sponge just like white sponge sponge cake yeah like, that's right so yeah. it was like i used uh when i was making it i just used a genoise recipe so like a standard uh genoise with some butter added um mm -hmm. and the custard is just like pastry cream uh with yeah. vanilla uh and then yeah the the poured chocolate fondant on top um and yeah it's uh it has a it's one of these desserts that has a very specific origin uh it was developed uh, in the 1850s, I think, uh, at the Parker House Hotel in Boston. Okay. And so, yeah, at the time, hotels in North America would provide, usually provide room and board. So, like, you would, the guests would pay a set price uh, and they would get um, a place to stay and there would be a meal served. And, like, you know, the hotel kitchen would make whatever they wanted that day and it would go up at a certain time and guests could help themselves. Mm -hmm. But, um the Parker House Hotel was trying to uh, introduce what they called the French system, which is, first of all, that people would pay separately for um, their room and for food. And people could order food whenever they wanted off of a menu, like an a la carte uh, menu. Um, right. And so to, to develop and promote this new style of service, they spent an exorbitant amount of money bringing over a, a famous chef from Paris. Um, and he ran the kitchens at the hotel, it became very the the food there became very famous they and they actually invented quite a, f a handful of uh things that are still around like there's have you ever had parker house rolls parker house buns i was just gonna ask you oh. the same thing <laughs> yeah i remember <laughs> i think i have had parker house rolls but i don't know i don't know what makes them parker house rolls yeah i don't know they're just like buttery dinner rolls but they have a bit of a different shape like they're a bit flatter than they they're not tall and puffy like uh what we think of as, as a standard a dinner, roll. dinner roll but yeah. um yeah they have a flatter square shape but anyways uh so yeah this this cake was developed in the the kitchen at the hotel um and it was i think this style of cake was not it, it was fairly common in america at the time like just this uh style of layer cake 
mm-hmm. but um there was some french um some fancy french influence on it with the say like the rum syrup brushed on the sponge and apparently right. the the poured chocolate fondant was a, a somewhat novel uh technique at the time but right yeah it uh became well known became much imitated um and it found its way into home cookbooks and stuff so it's now the the official cake of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, oh, really? Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and the hotel, like that Parker House Hotel, like it being so. Yeah, I think it's it still operates, and I think it's the the oldest continuously operating hotel in America. Wow, um, crazy! And it it has a it. Yeah like anything that old, I guess, like in a place like Boston, it just has all these crazy connections to American history. Like, right. Um, uh, I don't know, just random things like, like John Wilkes was shot there. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And like JFK, like, because he's a Massachusetts boy, like he, he, I think his, like he proposed to Jacqueline Kennedy there. His like bachelor oh, party was there. <laughs> so, yeah, lots of it. Oh, and uh, Charles Dickens lived there for five or six months when he was t- touring the New World. Jeez, the wow. first, the first reading, the first ever public reading of A Christmas Carol was at the Parker House Hotel. Jeez. Um, yeah, I don't know stuff like that. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and now, and now they have like a whole bunch of patrons that go there. And order pie, and when it comes, they're like, "This is cake." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I ordered pie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Silly tourists. <laughs> cool. That's interesting. Why did you choose that? Um, there, every week, there's like four or five that need to be done, and I let my oh, I te- teammates uh, pick have first pick of what they wanted to make and i was i was left with boston cream pie and baklava so oh fair enough yeah and how'd it go with the baklava uh it was good i basically (laughs) i used alton brown's recipe actually more or less sweet um do they want you to make do they want you to make your own phyllo no. <laughs> oh, okay. I've never done that actually but there's some like when i was just looking uh when I was researching like the, the history of baklava, there's so many interesting videos, um, on YouTube of people making, well, yeah, people making phyllo by hand. It's crazy. It's like, have you, have you seen it before the way they like? Yeah, I think I have like, it's, they use a rolling pin, but they're more like kind of like hanging it and rolling it at the same time. And there's really interesting videos of old, you know, old Greek men. Uh, they do this technique where they, like throw it in the air and so that it it like catches air the thin dome oh, right. catches yeah, air yeah, like yeah. a parachute um and then falls onto the table and like the air is trapped inside and so it's like this enormous you know a bubble, bubble. that's like four four feet wide kind of. um, yeah i have seen that that's crazy yeah and what actually another thing that blew my mind a youtube video is there was a, a turkish um they sorry a video of baklava production in a turkish bakery and they didn't butter each individual layer of phyllo. They huh. built it all dry, and then they just, <laughs> just dumped, submerged it, and then they just like ladled hot butter onto it. Oh, and it, it cool! Just, I didn't, I didn't want to risk it, uh, but that's an interesting technique because it would save a lot of time in the assembly if you didn't have to brush every single layer of the, you know, the thirty-five layers or whatever with butter. Yeah, that is interesting too because I feel like you would get probably a fairly different texture like you'd probably get more 
varied texture. Like you'd probably get some like some places where the pastry sticks together and so maybe you get like a little bit of soft pastry but then everything around it is crispy or something like mm. yeah <laughs> that's interesting dangerous probably <laughs> you need the right setup <laughs> i wouldn't want to be doing it to order like on my dessert station probably but like right <laughs> <laughs> have you ever have you ever used brick pastry no and actually i only had heard of it. There's a couple recipes in in the Eleven Madison Park cookbook that call for it. Oh, um, cool! But no, I haven't. Is it is it Middle Eastern or what, what's it? I what's its I origin? assume that it is, but I don't actually know. Um, but it's yeah. very similar to phyllo, mm-hmm. but it's like slightly thicker and kind of has a bit more of like a like fried bumpy texture or something. Oh, okay, anyway, and how is yeah, it sold? Like, what what form is it when you buy it? Uh, it's like individual sheets. Um, Mm -hmm. what I've seen, uh, I think the only place that I've ever actually used it or had it, or maybe I bought it for something else, like at some point, but the only time I really remember regularly using it was when I was working at the blue pair and, uh, we would get it like in a box. I'm assuming that it had been frozen. Um, and it was basically like, you know how like Philo, it's like in a roll and you like unroll yep. it kind of brick is like like stacked individual circular sheets basically mm. and the edge is always like a little bit crispier than like the middle so i think it's like made on something similar to like a crepe pan like a flat crepe cooker you know mm-hmm. yeah and they would just be I, I think they were just like pressed together and they just wouldn't stick together because it's like fairly dry. It's not quite as like moist and supple as phyllo is when you first open it up. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm wondering, it might be North African now because I, oh, I yeah, maybe. student, I not knowing very much about it, had tasked a student with making brioat, which are like the Moroccan turnovers. And I think they said that it was usually made with brick pastry, but I maybe that I'm confusing sense. them. Yeah. The interesting thing about uh like doing the research for the baklava i've often assumed that baklava was just a greek word and i always thought it was wrong to refer to for instance we, we talked about the um the lebanese sweet shop uh paradiso that makes lots of stuff with phyllo i always mm-hmm. assumed that it was just a convenience for <laughs> for westerners to call that baklava but it is actually the word that's used like all over the like it's it's a turkish word um but yeah that's what they use in greece where they speak greek obviously and in lebanon where they speak arabic but so everyone uses this turkish word baklava and it's because like the the oldest recipes and the oldest records of it are are from turkey and then basically the extent of the uh ottoman empire is the extent to which baklava is made in the world so i didn't realize how is how big the ottoman empire was like it it covered most of the certainly the the entire anything that touched the east uh mediterranean um was part of the ottoman empire so like from greece and obviously turkey and asia minor like all through the middle east and almost all of north africa and the saudi arabian peninsula and stuff so wow crazy um not not the same it's basically on the same scale as the roman empire um yeah not as big but on the same order of magnitude um 
and yeah all, all of those countries call it an empire i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um and, and yeah all, all of those countries still make uh still make baklava so it's interesting yeah honey you use honey and pistachios like pretty traditional or i did um i used honey not not exclusively um mm-hmm. But yeah, those are the that flavor. I think is is important for it, and because most of the the, the original recipes or the oldest recipes for it uh, predate uh, cane sugar arriving in uh, Asia Minor and Europe. So yeah, the, the oldest recipes call for honey. I did equal parts honey and sugar, mm-hmm. um, and I used uh, pistachios, almonds, and something else. I used three. Oh, walnuts. Yeah. Oh yeah um yum yeah and uh orange blossom water and a little bit of orange zest in and cinnamon in the um in the syrup so yeah turned out well sweet i was trying and you learned a little something about baklava that's right yeah. yeah and i was trying desperately to find um the the good eats episode on baklava on youtube but i can't uh i mm. couldn't for the life of me it used to be up there but now i guess do you know where is there a streaming service that carries good eats or i don't know off the top of my head i I would have probably known a year ago i was kind of trying to go down a bit of a good eats rabbit hole like a year ago and like Mm -hmm. because there were new episodes coming out and i was trying to make sure that i was able to watch them and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i don't think that i ever wound up even seeing them all because it was kind of complicated where to actually go and watch it Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Um, so yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm sure they must be available somehow, some way, somewhere. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it in ages, but I do remember like in, in typical Elton Brown fashion, he goes down these weird, weird, uh, like he makes his own rose water and stuff like that for his baklava. Wow. Really? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Does he just go buy roses from a florist or what? Uh, yep. He does. He goes and he buys roses. And then he has a big canning pot. And how does it work? The roses go in the bottom with water. Yeah. And then he puts a brick in the middle of the pot uh-huh. and then puts a bowl on top of the brick. So the bowl is being uh-huh. held above the liquid. And then he inverts the lid of the canning pot. Um, so that it will drip down into the... Yeah. So he's distilling the... Yeah. yeah. And then he, and then yeah. he puts ice and sorry, puts, so puts the inverted lid on the pot and then puts ice on top of the pot, like in, in the hollow of the lid. And then he puts it onto the stove and yeah, the rose Makes his water. Own still. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I don't, that seems like something that maybe the way more effort than it's worth to get something that's just going to taste exactly like what you would buy at the store but i wonder if it would though i wonder if it would just taste way better i'm not really a big fan of rose water i like makes sense and and like the flavor of it definitely works in some applications and stuff like that but yeah i wonder if you would get something that's like i don't know more subtly flavored or something if you did it did it yourself and it was freshly made or something right Yeah. yeah yeah I mean, seems like to go to the trouble, there must have been a reason, or maybe he just wanted to show off how how he had to make <laughs> his own right. still out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seems like something that somebody in Alberta could make a business out of wild wild rose water or some kind of I don't yeah, know, that's like Turkish delight idea. with wild rose water. I don't know. Oh yeah, don't you know everyone hates Turkish delight, Alan? <laughs> I don't like. Uh, 
No, I like Turkish Delight, actually. I kind of like it, too, which is weird because I don't really like rose water. But. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that okay. was bread station. And then last station was service station. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the regular a la carte uh, desserts, there was uh, three. There was a rhubarb almond tart served with brown butter ice cream. There was a panna cotta. What was it? Oh, a yuzu panna cotta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a chocolate mousse that was served with what? With um, cocoa nib brittle, um, chocolate snow, and some fresh berries. Um, so we got to do some of the prep for that. But then um, that last week, like I mentioned, it was a it was a set menu, like a holiday menu, and the dessert was sticky date pudding uh, with eggnog ice cream, brandy snap and mandarin orange um so there was a, some mandarin orange fluid gel and some little um and some orange segments i guess some orange supremes as well all the holiday classics yeah exactly um it was a tasty dessert um and for the buffet the special components to prep were i mentioned the uh we did crepe suzette right uh, i made yeah some odds and ends like like madeleines and things like that but um yeah cool so does that station they make all of the components for all of those desserts or yeah that's right yeah Yeah. so it's you're kind of doing stuff that crosses um crosses all the the other stations like you're you're doing some uh sugar work and chocolate work and baking and stuff like that so um yeah all of the components for all the desserts come from that station cool what was the first one uh a rhubarb almond tart oh yeah so it was basically like it was pat sucre and then they called it almond cream, but it's kind of like a frangipan kind of mm. situation. Uh, and then gotcha. ch- chopped rhubarb um, and streusel on top. Cool. And which one had the brown butter ice cream? Do you want to tell me how you were making that? I've made brown <laughs> butter ice cream before and I'm curious. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah, that was with the tart. Um, if I didn't actually personally make it, but I believe they stream brown butter into creme anglaise i think it's that simple oh is that i can send you the recipe but like i said i didn't make it but does that can it be that simple it can can it uh like they would stream in the brown butter to the creme anglaise while it's warm while the creme anglaise is like hot before it sets or I'll have to check, but I do remember there was one batch where the brown butter wasn't properly emulsified into the creme anglaise. And so it ended up with like little flecks of fat. Grainy flecks of butter. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I guess I don't know how the, how it was meant to be incorporated, but yeah, it does need to be emulsified somehow. Properly emulsified. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. Um, What I think what I've done most often is, uh, in order to avoid that, like having to worry about emulsifying the butter directly into whatever ice cream base I'm going to use. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's tricky is that like on a small scale, although I would imagine like, because you guys are using like a real batch freezer with like a fairly large cylinder and stuff, the problem that you run into is that if you have too much fat content in your ice cream, it tends while it's churning to 
like a lot of the fat tends to agglomerate on the blades and so it's it starts to butter inside the mm-hmm. batch freezer while you're churning it and then while you're pulling it out of the batch freezer those bits of um fat can like come out and get into the ice cream and then you wind up with yeah like kind of like chunky bits of fat in your ice cream so it's important to pay attention to how much fat you have in your recipe mm-hmm. um and you know you can counteract like for instance if normally you would make your ice cream with like part cream and part milk or something to get the right fat content then you could just make it like with less cream and more milk and then you would have room to add extra fat and then you would get the correct fat content if you wanted or whatever. And and Mm -hmm. I'm sure that those types of things are being taken into account in the recipe, but yeah, it's tricky just trying to add the flavor of a fat into an ice cream recipe that you sort of have already that's pre-existing. Right. Yeah. I, I definitely did some experimentation with brown butter ice cream for kind. I don't remember actually off the top of my head whether we actually served it for anything. Oh, is there? Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember if. But um, I know that the technique that I used to get the brown butter flavor into the ice cream was basically uh, making a brown butter syrup. Oh, okay. So I would take butter... Mm-hmm. unsalted butter, um, melt it, add a whole bunch of milk solids. So mm-hmm. like powdered milk or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Full fat milk powder. And then bring that up to the browning butter browning temperature. Um, get it, you know, completely browned um, to like, a, like not really dark, um, you know, like, noisette mm-hmm. or whatever and then basically strain off the oil take all of the solids and then just blend them into simple syrup and then use the oh, flavored okay. simple syrup as like the additional flavoring for the ice cream oh, okay which sort of reduces the 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 like fat that stays on the milk solids you know, there's a little bit of it, but it incorporates or emulsifies pretty easily into the syrup. So you don't really wind up with a problem there. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have to worry as much about, yeah, emulsifying the fat. You just get the flavor of the brown butter and you already have a whole bunch of milk fat in the ice cream. So, right. um, so you get the effect of brown butter while being able to control it a little better. But mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the technique I used. And then we could and then you can reuse the butter that you used to brown all that milk solids. Right. You just like okay. put that in a container and then, you know, it's basically like clarified butter at that right. point with a little bit of kind of brown butter flavor. And mm-hmm. then the next time you need to go and do it, you just use that same butter over again and add more powdered milk and then mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. That's cool. I guess it sounds like I was showing off. it's too bad that you didn't get to make ice cream while you were on that station i did make lots of ice cream just not the brown butter ice cream oh okay um that's the actually the other um the the fourth a la carte dessert is just like a rotating uh ice cream and sorbet flavors oh right okay um so at any given time like i think what do we do I made a coconut um, ice cream, and someone else in the group made a passion fruit sorbet. So Sweet. the 
those a la carte services, that's what the offerings were. So. Cool. And you said it was a yuzu panna cotta that you had? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, cool. And it was uh, like the pen, it was set with agar. Um, so it was, uh, that oh. was a vegan friendly dessert actually. Cool. Uh, you, I think it was yuzu, yuzu coconut panna cotta. So. And do you know, were you using like yuzu puree or something to flavor yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Like Boiron brand fruit oh, puree. Okay. Yeah. 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 Probably pretty pricey that. Yeah. A little goes a long way though. Uh, in yeah, that, in that's that preparation. But. Yeah. Sweet. Any other highlights? Oh yeah. So many gooseberries, Shell. You would have been <laughs> <laughs> There was your fingers are still sticky from decaping gooseberry <laughs> gooseberries. Well, we didn't decape them. We opened them up and presented it with the cape. Oh yeah, no, that's what I mean. I so, okay, sort of, yeah. I, I guess, like, yeah, decaping is maybe the, the wrong word, but like, opening up the cape and like, and turning it into like a fancy paper topper to your berry, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it was on the the sticky date pudding plate. Right, it looked nice. It was a very, it was like a an earthy look. Like it was all browns, oranges, and beiges on the plate. So you had like. Yeah. Brown sticky date pudding and caramel, um, orange gooseberry, orange, orange segments. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, it looked nice. Yeah, that's cool. That's so funny, though. I just, I can't picture one without thinking about the 90s. <laughs> They're back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what goes around comes around. <laughs> yeah, every every dessert needed either a Cape gooseberry or a kumquat on it back in the day. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Food Court, a podcast recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Food Court is hosted by Alan Sudeby and Shale McDonald. Theme music by Ryan and Shale McDonald. Make sure to subscribe to Food Court in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or in your favorite podcast player. We love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at feedback at foodcourt.fm or find us on Instagram at foodcourtpodcast. If you want to spread the word, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a fresh new episode. Thanks for listening.